0: This is episode number 357 with Jamie Schmidt of The Founder Podcast.
1: What you need is thirst. You need to be a
0: thirsty human who is intent on learning.
1: It's a really fascinating fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. 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 Now, The Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help.
0: Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hey guys, Nathan here. Welcome back to another episode of the Founder Podcast. Hope you're doing well wherever you are around the world. If you are new, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation and today's guest is Jamie Schmidt from Schmidt Naturals. Incredible story. Um, If you want to know how to build a global e-commerce brand from your home with little capital and she achieved a nine-figure exit, then this is the podcast for you. Now, she also has created an incredible book called Supermaker, Crafting Business on Your Own Terms, and she also has started her own investment fund. And really, what I talk to Jamie about in this episode is how she started her brand, how she started small Uh, Also, like how she worked and landed like a big company like Unilever to partner with, how she manufactured in-house and why, you know, easing into the business was an incredible way to her eventual exit. So there's so much you can learn if you want to know how to start a physical products-based business, an incredible brand. Also, how to do wholesale right, you need to listen to this episode. All right, guys, that's it from me. Now, let jump in the show. First question I ask everyone that comes on is, uh, how do you find yourself doing the work you're doing today?
1: Well, it, it, it took a lot to get here. Um, I've held 22 jobs, according to my report from uh, the IRS. Um, so, today's job, you know, gosh, I'd say my, my entrepreneurial journey, you know, really was the, the highlight of my career. Um, and then today, I'm an investor and an author. But Getting getting to the point of starting a company, you know, that was just a lot of exploration, getting my hands dirty, um, and really just not settling, like not allowing myself to be complacent in my work, and just realizing that um, I wanted to be happy with what I was doing. And um, so there was a lot that went that that got up to that point.
0: So was Smiths uh, Naturals your first company?
1: Yeah. It was. And when I started it, I did not anticipate it really, you know, becoming much of a company. Um, it started more as a hobby, something I was doing for fun. I was living, I still am, in Portland, Oregon. It's the most creative city here in, in the U.S. Um, and everybody here is like an artist or a maker or a creator of some sort. And I wanted to fit in. And so I really was, you know, kind of stressing, like, how, how can I find my creative outlet? And so I started trying all sorts of things. Um, the timing was great, though, because I had moved here. With the intention of, um, you know, really figuring out what I wanted to do with my life. I had found myself working my way up the HR ladder, um, kind of in a corporate job, you know, really good pay, decent benefits, but just not loving the work. Um, so when I came here, I thought it was, it was, you know, a nice opportunity for a fresh start. Um, and Portland was the perfect place. So I got, um, got busy with a lot of different things and where I really found, um, you know, my myself was with making personal care products. You know, I was pregnant at the time too. And so I was paying closer attention to the products I was using on my skin. Um, and so I started making deodorant, shampoos, soaps, lotions, all of it. And next thing you know, I was selling it at the farmer's market.
0: Mm, interesting. And when was that? Was that 2012, 2011? 2010. 2010. 2010. 10, yep. Got you. So started um, hand making the products yourself. How did you, how did you work out like what to put in them and how to produce them?
1: Yeah, a lot of trial and error. Um, I'm not a chemist. I get that question a lot. Um, But I'm just a fan of natural products and clean ingredients and just did a lot of research on, um, you know, the functions of different natural things. And so my first formulas, it was just products or ingredients you can find in your kitchen shelf. Um, So baking soda, um, you know, cocoa butter and things like that. And so not, you know, the most advanced, um, you know, synthetic ingredients, but just very natural organic ingredients from the earth.
0: Yeah, I see. And you would use like YouTube or something to to learn how to produce a deodorant or?
1: Uh, it was more of learning about the functions of the different ingredients and then using my own, I guess, a lot of trial and error to to bring them together to create um, a formula that felt good. And there were so many iterations to get the texture right. That was the hardest part was, um, you know, you can choose the ingredients that are going to serve a purpose. For example, um, you know, baking soda absorbs uh, odor, and then you can use arrowroot root powder to help keep the armpit dry. Um, but the trick is in getting them to come together and stay together, um, without using synthetic binders. Now i don't want to get too technical, but like that, it truly was a major challenge, especially without having like a chemistry degree or any sort of background in, um, science. Uh, yeah, well, it was not easy, but it was a lot of, it was fun. You know, I didn't have, there wasn't any obligation hanging over me. I didn't have business partners. I didn't have any, um, investment capital, you know, so no investors to, to answer to. It was more just fun for me. And then the business very slowly, I took a couple of years kind of easing into it, perfecting the formula and getting feedback from customers at the market. You know, That was a great opportunity for me to meet face-to-face with customers and get their feedback on what I was doing.
0: How long did it take to get the first product and what was the first product for you for comfortable to go to farmers markets?
1: Mm, I, yeah, I never was hundred percent comfortable when I went out. Uh, I kind of just realized it was time to, to just get out there and, and sell it. I I, love, I loved it personally, And you know, when and I shared with friends and family, and, you know, they were raving about the product, and so I thought, well, let's just see what other people think, and so um, it was also just a great way to make a buck and spend a Saturday afternoon at the market in Portland, um, but then, you know, customers were loving it, coming back the next week, giving me their feedback, and it was also, you know, not everybody had 100% positive things to say, so it was just a great opportunity for me to take their criticisms, too, and apply them to perfecting the product, and customers just you know, they love to be heard. They love to feel like they're part, you know, of your brand, especially in those earliest days. So it was just a win-win for everybody.
0: So you would say like you, you were selling at farmer's markets for about two years. So would you say maybe it took like three to six months to be able to create the first product to be able to take there?
1: Yeah, that'd be, that'd be an appropriate timeline. I was still refining things in the process. And I'd also started with more products. Um, I had a whole line of products, but then I realized the deodorant was the one thing that um, there was a real business potential behind. You know, I was at the markets for, you know, one and a half to two years, but pretty early on, I realized there was more, you know, there was wholesale potential and um, a real opportunity on the shelves, um, especially in deodorant. There just weren't a lot of natural deodorants. And the ones that were out there just, um, they, needed, they needed a, a shakeup.
0: During that, t- that two years period, at that, was there any point in time where you were like, I can go full time on this, or was it just like a side hobby, passion project for those few years, and it just slowly grew, or like like yeah, I'd love to get a game. I, I
1: wanted to, I wanted to go all in full time. Um, my household income was very humble. My husband was a social worker. You know, we had our income was less than thirty five thousand between the two of us, and we were new parents. Um, so I did, I did have to take a couple side jobs in the earliest days. Um, so I found a couple gigs um, locally that spent just a few hours a week, enough to just have a bit of a cushion. Um, and then that money, you know, I, I really considered the seed money for the business. Yeah,
0: I see. So how did the, how did the brand evolve from farmers markets? Did you start going direct to consumer or was, did you start wholesale or like how did you, how did the brand evolve?
1: Wholesale came first. Uh, I had some interest uh, at the markets locally, Uh, with retailers approaching me. And then I also just recognized, um, you know, in Portland, there was a lot of opportunity to sell at places like uh, food co-ops where, you know, natural enthusiasts would be shopping. And so I really took advantage of that. And then um, about a year into that, I I really took on the the D2C piece and built out the website. And um, that's when we really exploded. And um, Omnichannel was really at the forefront of our strategy or my strategy back then, um, you know, from day one. And I recognized I wanted to be everywhere, Um, a lot of brands, you know, especially natural will consider a niche market and want to stay within that market. But for me, I really saw opportunity to, to build beyond that. I felt there were, for one, there was major opportunity because natural brands hadn't done it yet. And two, I just felt, um, that it was the right thing to do. I wanted people to have access to healthy natural products that worked and people, um, you know, in middle America and just people that aren't necessarily, you know, connected to some of these like communities like Portland just didn't have access and didn't even know about some of these products and for me that was really important to, to give them access.
0: Yeah no that's awesome so um, I'm sorry if I'm uh, asking too many details but it's just good to get context like for people <laughs> because I'm familiar with our community and what you've done is so impressive by the way like thank you, you. like nine figures in annual revenue to then eventually exiting to Unilever and now like like in this for your first business in the space of about eight years like that is very impressive so i just i'll
1: clarify the revenue was seven figures
0: but the acquisition was nine okay all right sorry seven yeah Yeah. actually
1: no sorry no eight
0: figures eight Eight figures annual (laughs) revenue nine figure exit yeah extremely extremely impressive so i just want to give context because i know these questions because people will doubt themselves right and this is like an incredible story so okay so The farmer's markets obviously got a few wholesale deals. How did you fund the... I guess the POs from those wholesale deals. If cash flow was like, was there any cash flow crunches? Did you have to get outside capital to fund that, or still bootstrapped?
1: That was the the trickiest part of building the business was the financing piece. Um, and to be honest, when I first started, I didn't give a whole lot of thought into you know how am I going to fund this thing. It really just grew so naturally and so organically that um, you know next thing you know my business. Expenses were attached to my personal bank account, and it's not something I'd necessarily recommend. It just kind of happened that way, um, and you know we were strapped for cash constantly, but somehow we made it work. And I think it was just I grew up with a very frugal mentality and upbringing, and I really just looking back, like I think that really played into it. Um, but at the same time, you know, you you're, you have to you know of course cut corners and be cheap, but you also had to be willing to spend money when you're building a business. So the trick isn't just knowing where. You know, where to where to be frugal and, and where to, to, to be willing to spend. Um, so apparently, you know, I was pretty good at that. And um, I think what really helped too is once we kicked the D2C into action, then, you know, we had that immediate income that we could then use to fund other operations of the business. So the wholesale piece was certainly probably the hardest to manage because you're dealing with payment terms and um, also, you know, your margins, you know, you're know, not making as much money on that product. Um, but that D2C piece, you know, if you can main, maintain strong sales there, then that can be super helpful in, in funding the business.
0: Yeah. Got you. So, um, when did you go full-time all in on the business? Cause after the markets, PO, few POs, you probably about two, three years in, when did you go full-time all in? Yeah.
1: Yeah. It was about, I'd say three years in, um, it was a big kind of leap of faith, but I realized, you know, all my time was Really needed to be spent on the business if I wanted to, to take it to the next level. And once I made that decision, you know, that's when we really just exploded, um, started picking up some bigger retail accounts, um, some chains, cross country, and actually, um, our global accounts came pretty early too. So that's not typical sometimes for you know a consumer product is to get that interest from overseas so soon. But I really embraced that, and I think um, a lot of people are, are intimidated by that. And I think that's one piece of advice I would give to new founders is pursue that international business because there's a lot of opportunity there. And so in doing that, it opened up, you know, a lot of revenue streams for us too. Mm,
0: Interesting. So um, it sounds like some of the game changers was starting small, thinking of it as a project, not as like a, like a side project or like not as a big business and getting, you got your feedback loop from the farmer's markets, which sounds like a game changer to perfect the product. And to really understand yeah. the customer avatar and, and how to speak to that market.
1: Absolutely. But, you know, as the company got bigger, that became a bit more sophisticated. You know, we couldn't just rely on my intuition and the local customers. We had to start implementing practices where, you know, we were getting true consumer insights and paying for surveys and, and things like that. Um, but in the earliest days, yeah, that was just a blessing for me. And I I really do think, you know, just easing into the business like I did was was an asset. And it also enabled me to just really build up a community of followers and brand fanatics that are still with us today.
0: Yeah, amazing. And when it comes to D2C, you said you turned that on. What did that look like? You obviously started on Shopify. Um, mm. Like what did you start doing PPC? Did you work with an agency to do PPC or did you start working with influencers? What did that whole play look like? Because that sounds like that, was a bit of a, a step change in growth as well.
1: Yeah. Well, we started to get influencers kind of before that. Um, there was a lot of interest through YouTubers back then. Like 2012 was like the the time of the YouTuber, and we had a lot of interest there. Um, but around that same time, um, my husband, Chris, joined up. He came in um, around 2013, 14, and um, built out a website. He's you know, fortunately has that, that skill, so he didn't have to pay for somebody outside to do that. Um, and then just really kicked in the, um, the, the ads to the ad strategy around social media and Google. And back then, you know, ads were cheaper across Facebook and really effective too. You know, people weren't using them as much and, you know, things look a little different today, but that was really effective for us.
0: Mm, yeah, it is. Look, there still are tons of opportunities in the market for like PPC or influencers, but it is astronomically more competitive.
1: right inexpensive
0: yeah yeah i agree so then what happened next like um did you start building uh head office in oregon um did you start using 3pls at what point in time did you hand over the manufacturing of the products how Mm -hmm. did that all work
1: yeah i kept manufacturing in-house throughout the growth of the business up until the acquisition by unilever wow Uh, that was pretty crazy (laughs) it's nuts you know because you think about all the stresses that you have as a startup in general. Right. And then you add this whole piece of in-house manufacturing on top of it. And it's just so many more layers of responsibility. Um, but I just couldn't see it any other way. You know, I had built the, the product, you know, by hand in my kitchen, scaled that as long as I could. And then um, within four years, we had moved three times to different manufacturing spaces. And I was doing all the research I could to learn about different machines and how to build all the production line. And it was just so much that I had to just learn on the fly you know, I, I'm glad I did it that way. I don't think everybody's equipped to do it. I don't think every product is built to, to, you know, be managed that way, but a lot of challenges and, and major setbacks and expenses, you know, that come along with it. Um, and then in the final years, right before the acquisition, I actually had partnered up with the contract manufacturer just as a backup and kind of a peace of mind, if anything were to go terribly wrong. Um, and in doing that, I learned a lot actually by just observing their processes and how they were manufacturing. And they they were makers of some of the bigger deodorant brands. And so it was just a nice way for me to get a peek inside, you know, what a real factory looks like and, and then bring that back home and implement it in my own factory.
0: So at what point in time did you personally get sick of making the product?
1: Never really. In fact, that was probably my favorite part did of the really? business, but it, I mean, it was, I had other things I had to put my energy on, obviously, you know, because as a founder, you become the CEO and you're leading, you know, this company. Um, but making was so fun for me, but definitely became a distraction at some point. And so I had to hire out a team pretty early. That was actually my first hire. It was somebody to help make the deodorant. And then I hired someone right after to start shipping. But whenever we created new scents or new formulas, that was still led by me. And I was doing that in my home kitchen, despite the fact that we had our um, manufacturing facility, you know, I would just go home and just really focus and, and create in my kitchen. And then we would introduce the new scents. And so that was pretty cool to keep it you know in the founders hands and our customers appreciated that and it was fun for me
0: yeah it's interesting you say that i reckon there's some magic to that i know you kind of just like yeah it was fun but like i reckon there's some magic (laughs) to that um that basically you have had you had your hand in product development and actually doing Mm -hmm. it understanding the processes all the way to, to to then exiting the business um so i'm curious When it came to, I guess, finding that first employee, um, did they just work from your kitchen or you just had to get a facility at that point in time and invest um, capital into equipment? Or like, yeah, because that would have been quite cost intensive. How, did you ever take outside funding or was only when you partnered with Unilever to, to begin with? Um, yeah. Like, how did you like because that sounds very capital intensive.
1: Right. Right. Well, to answer your first question, um, my first employee that I hired, we, we happen to have a um, mother-in-law house. I don't know if you know that term, um, basically a kind of a separate little house or dwelling behind your house that just had the perfect setup for somebody to make deodorant. So I had a tiny little bathroom, it had like a small space that they could use. And so I hired a friend and he came over and he set his own hours and he'd be out there making deodorant. But the funny thing is I was cooling in my, ref- the product in my refrigerator at the time. So he'd be, you know, trying and send into the house with like a, this whole like platter full of deodorant. We'd have to like make room in the refrigerator. <laughs> it definitely was not ideal. Um, but then I found a, a space really close by in my neighborhood, which was a really interesting setup. Um, there was a man who had leased out some some kind of separate spaces within this bigger building. And so there was a pet shop in there, there was a paper shredder, and then there was a space for me. And then I was able to build it just to my liking and my needs for it, which was so perfect for the very first manufacturing space because he was really flexible with terms, you know, it was a month to month setup he cut me a really good deal on, on my rent, you know, he, we kind of became buddies. And so we, it just, it just worked out nicely. And I feel, you know, really fortunate to have had that opportunity. And I think the best thing about it was that I was able to finally schedule pickups by UPS and USPS, because I used to go to the post office every day, you know, with my, my bags and my boxes and it became a big, huge thing. So I think, you know, that's not always the case, right. But if there's opportunity for, for founders to find that setup, you know, that, that was beautiful for me.
0: Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a ton. As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business and you want to hear from some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I who are actually in the trenches, only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like that are building right now and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success. You should come and check out our new podcast, From Zero to Founder, hosted by our community manager, Molly Flynn. These are in the trenches stories from our very own successful students that have gone through some of our programs. People just like you who are deep within the process of building their very own successful business. These are the founders of tomorrow. You can find the From Zero to Founder podcast on all platforms. And remember, it's founder without the E. All right, now let's jump in the show. It was in 2017 that you partnered with Unilever. How did that come about? Did they find you or like, yeah, how did that come about?
1: Well, we were at a point where the business definitely needed money. You know, we had gotten to this point by really just feeling being stretched in the entire time. But, but in 2017, you know, we launched in Costco, Target, Walmart. So all our money was tied up on shelves. You know, we just, it just was not available to us. And we, so it became you know, pretty, pretty necessary to start fundraising. And so we looked at a few different options there. We talked to some VCs, um, started talking to private equity firms, um, and then took on a broker, um, Goldman Sachs, uh, to start just sort of you know, having these conversations for us. And through that process, um, Unilever and then a couple other strategics entered the picture Um, it was not in my thinking at all, ever, throughout the growth of the business. In fact, you know, even when we started fundraising, it just wasn't thinking about an exit at the time. Um, But then once they started, you know, expressing interest, and then we started doing um, diligence and opening up our data room and things, and then the reality was, you know, became clear. And I thought, this is actually a really, really smart step for the business.
0: Mm, That makes sense. So, um would you be able to share kind of like what at that point in time when you it was starting to get quite capital intensive around just pos and and cash flow like what was annual revenue how many staff um how mm-hmm. like how many how many people did you have how many like like order volume like what, what kind of movement were we talking
1: yeah we were around i think 25 million in revenue at the time of the acquisition Uh, We had 150 employees uh, working across two ships. You know that included manufacturing, and then retailers. We had about 30,000 retailers and across 30 different countries, and so we were. Yeah, Yeah, wow,
0: and uh, yeah, and (laughs) and you you also doing international too? You said as well, not just not just US, right? Yeah. Okay, interesting. Okay, so now, um, what are you excited about now? Because um, I know you're. You released a book, and I know that uh, you're doing uh, investing as well. So, what's exciting for you now?
1: Yeah, all sorts of things. I, you know, I think at the top of my priority list is really just being a, a resource for other aspiring entrepreneurs. Um, I really, I really want to democratize entrepreneurship and let other people know that like they're equipped to be an entrepreneur. You know, I think sometimes we need stories like the Schmidt story to just just give us that push to to you know take the leap. Um, and I think my story is just a perfect example of somebody who started from nothing, you know, just had a true a belief in the in product and recognized an opportunity and just went for it. Um, so with that, I've done a couple of things. I've launched my book, like you said, uh, it's called super maker, um, crafting business on your own terms. I released it in September last year. Um, that's been really well received. You know, the feedback I'm getting is that people are, you know, exactly what I was hoping is that they're like, wow, you know, I see myself in your story and, and, and this is um, really inspiring. Um, I also started an investment fund with my husband and business partner, Chris Cantino. Uh, It's called Color. And we invest, um, we say in the the things people buy and the way they buy them. So we're real passionate about the consumer space, um, not just products, but but the tech that supports um, products and, and brands. And there's more in the works too. You know, we we had a grant program when COVID started that um, that helped, um, you know, keep the entrepreneurial dream alive by funding businesses and building a grant network, or excuse me, a mentor network. Um, I have a TV opportunity coming up. It's called Going Public. I'm not sure if you've heard of that, um, but it's a new series. It'll be streamed on Entrepreneur Media um, where we follow five entrepreneurs who are um, raising capital or looking to go public and then investors at home can invest um, through Regulation A plus. So I'll be a mentor on that oh, show.
0: Oh wow, that's cool. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, it
1: is cool. I'm excited.
0: Wow, interesting. So um, I'm curious around your investment fund. Um, tell me about some of the companies that you've invested in thus far, and what is what is interesting happening right now because. You know, post-COVID, there's a lot of deal flow, um, like, you know, like, well, not, pro, but but during during this time period, right? Like, you know, obviously COVID mm-hmm. hit and then it's crazy some of the things that are happening right now, what people are working on. There's a, there's a shift happening um, yeah. around all sorts of things. So there's a lot of deal flow, a lot of interesting businesses out there. I'd love to hear your take
1: yeah for sure there's there's definitely a you know a lot of d2c brands that have come out of covid um which you know we're excited about but what we really are interested in is is brands that recognize the opportunity with with omnichannel you know that's how schmitz was built and i really think a lot of brands are missing out when they go d2c only and so we always try to encourage people to think beyond that um and i think you know not just expanding into retail, but expanding into channels that maybe your competition is not thinking about. Um, For example, I mentioned earlier with Schmitz, you know, I wanted to make our product available to the masses and not just for that niche natural user. And so I looked at channels that the competition wanted nothing to do with, right? Like Walmart, for example, they, people would, you know, frown on that and say, I don't want my products in Walmart, right? But I did. And I wanted, I thought there was just a beautiful opportunity there to reach customers that we otherwise wouldn't and that the competition was missing out on. Um, so we look for brands that are kind of thinking that way.
0: Interesting. Um, when you uh, Just for, for those listening that are not familiar with Omnichannel, what does that mean?
1: Yeah, it just means um, uh, distributing your products across different um, distribution outlets. So, for example, not just D2C or your website, but going into retailers and um, selling on a variety of um, e-com or, mar- or sites or marketplaces. Um,
0: yeah. Yep, got you. Yeah, so, um, yep, you're yeah. yeah, everywhere. You want to be like yeah. that idea of being everywhere. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So, um, yeah, I'd love to hear. Like, so, are you able to share some of the companies or any interesting ones? Because you said you also, yeah, yeah um, you support the tech behind some of these companies. Well, so that could be perhaps um, some like a Shopify tool, or probably you don't probably don't go as niche as Shopify plugins, do you?
1: Well, the one we recently announced our investment in is called Alloy. Um, and they do a lot to support um, D2C brands. So there, there will be tools on there that will help just support that buying experience um, and beyond. So that that we're really excited about. One of the brands, um, Ugly, is it, it's a drink of sparkling waters that, at face value, you would think, okay, that's a competitive market, right? Like who wants to invest in sparkling waters because there's so many brands? But that's a great example of what I was just talking about about being open to you know distribution channels that. Um, you know, some of the competition isn't. Um, so that, that one we're really excited about. And we've also invested in um, another beverage company uh, called House, uh, who really, uh, that one comes to my mind because they just were, they executed so beautifully during COVID, um, where they created this restaurant project, they called it, where they partnered up with local restaurants to create specific flavors. Um, and then any money that was made in selling those flavors went to the restaurants to help keep them open um, during COVID, which is um, pretty crazy to think about like a startup, you know, being so so generous. Um, but it was it which just brought so much attention to their brand and it just was a really good look for them. Um, but our, our whole portfolio is at um color.capital. We have about 15 investments to date. Um, so generally it's spanning, you know, obviously food and beverage, but also we enjoy fashion and personal care um, and then the tech piece.
0: Yeah, no, that's awesome. Yeah. But yeah, purely focus on e-com.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, no, that's awesome. Because like, yeah, the, e-com is massive. There's so much opportunity out there. I'd love to delve a little deeper on the idea that um, you're really focused on companies that are open to, to omni-channel Why do you think some brands are just focused purely on straight D to C? Um, Yeah. Yeah. Like you look at, look, look at a brand like Glossier, like, like they're pure direct to consumer. Um, This is quite a few, right? Yeah.
1: I think there's definitely some exceptions where that makes sense to stay D to C. Like Glossier is a perfect example or a brand with a, you know, a product like Peloton, right? Like you don't want to finding them in stores wouldn't make sense, but if your product is a consumable, and, you know, it's a price point that you can make it, you know, a high volume. I, I think it, you're missing out if you don't. And I think a lot of brands are intimidated by it. One, because, um, you know, the price points, it's it's harder, the margins, right? We just don't make as much money that way. Um, and then two, it's just kind of scary. I think some people are really intimidated by retail. There's so much to learn. There are a lot of like fees involved and just extra work. Um, but I encourage people that, that are feeling that way to to get out there and just try it because it's not as scary as it think as is, is you might think. Um, you know, you take some work to get the buyers' attention sometimes, but um, once that happens, and you know, if you prove yourself, then it can be a beautiful opportunity to expand your brand. And also, too, I want to add, I think having channel exclusive products sometimes is the right answer for some brands. Um, you know, it's it's okay to have certain products that you're just keeping on your website, and then maybe having a specific product that you sell to a certain type of retailer you know, that is a strategy that you should be thinking about too, if you're, if you are considering it on
0: channel. Mm, Yeah, that's a really good point. So this brings me to my next question where I actually resonate. Um, It can be scary. And I, you know, we speak to a lot of people in our community where it's, it's easy to set up a Shopify store, send products to influencers, develop the brand, have your email marketing strategy going, go to your Facebook ads like and and you can you can build a, a significant business just rinse repeating that formula right yeah. um, but but the retail space you you've got longer I guess it's longer lead times it's a lot of yeah. knocking down doors it's a lot of no's. it's it is scary and it can be intimidating working with these big brands the margins can be you know much different to D2c So I'm curious for those listening right now that have a brand, um, they're not in retail, um, Mm -hmm. what advice would you give? How would you say someone should get started?
1: I would say when you're approaching the retailers, really show how you're going to add value to the category as a whole and expand it. Um, It's less effective to come in and talk about, you know, why your product's better than what's on the shelves currently. It's more about how are you growing that category as a whole, Um, I learned that through the conversations I was having with buyers, and I just think um, that's that's just a smart thing to think about. That might not seem obvious in the beginning when you're just getting started.
0: And what about even getting in the door, like getting those meetings? Like, cause that's yeah, any tips, tricks, yeah, anything there?
1: (laughs) Well, I have some good stories in my book where you know I just had really just. Per, just persistence and, you know, probably annoyance <laughs> with some of these retailers. And I followed up a lot. I really believed that my product belonged on their shelves and I always made a case for why. Um, but I would, you know, I'd build out cases I could present. So for example, um, if you are just selling DSC, you know, show your growth shows that, you know, how much you've grown from when you started to now and month over month. And, um, and then if you're in other retailers, you know, you can make a case for why you deserve to be in the next you know, level up of retailers. Um, I remember, and this is less relevant now with COVID, but you know, trade shows are just a really great way to to connect with retailers. And so when there's opportunity there, I would highly encourage that. I made a lot of connections that way.
0: Mm, yeah. And how, what about in terms of prospecting? Who is the who are the right decision makers? Do you use LinkedIn or like like how do you work out who's the right decision makers?
1: Mm, to to work with me and that team. Yep. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. I didn't use LinkedIn a ton. You know, I, I like it for networking and connecting um, you know, with industry friends, but um, I found most of my employees and I had honestly, like I don't recommend this always, but my first couple came through referrals um, and referrals I think are good, but I think it's, it gets a little bit weird if you're starting to hire friends and family. And I, you know, I did that in the beginning and that, that became harder to manage later Um, but I do think i referrals and networking are going to be important. Like maybe through Twitter, for example, I think that's a great place to build community, um, and to really, um, you know, show what what you're doing. There's this whole idea of building in public now where, um, you know, you're very transparent about every step of the business. And I think doing that allows you to get people excited about what you're building and get people wanting to work for you.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. You say there is this big movement, right? Around just building in public. Tra- like ultimate transparency, you look at companies like Buffer, who they even make all their mm-hmm. metrics public. Um, and, yeah, people like to follow the journey, uh, that hero's journey. There's something, there's something special about that. Um, you look at Gymshark and what um, Ben Francis has done, Are you familiar with his story and how he's documented it along the way over these past 10 years?
1: Yeah, I've seen a bit of that. I think I saw it recently an example of brands that are effectively building in public. I think that's just the trend now. But I also want to say, like, I challenge it a little because I think there's some beautiful examples. But I also think that to do that, you have to have an established audience. And we all, we don't all have that right away when we have, when we're hit with a business idea or inspiration, like we don't necessarily have our audience built and to try to do that before we launch can be stressful and really time consuming. Um, When I started my business, I was nobody, right? No one knew who Jamie Schmidt was, Um, but I was able to to build it successfully. And then, you know, now people know, know of me, but you know, back then they didn't. And so I just would encourage people not to stress on that point too much. If it makes sense for your company, you know, and you can do it or you already have that audience, that's great. But if you don't, you know, don't let that stop you.
0: Yeah, because there's always an opportunity cost, right? Like you could be creating content or you could be out there, you know, hustling to get into Target, mm-hmm. right? And, right. and, and yeah, taking exactly. meetings, right? It's, it's just, yeah, it is tricky, right, to know. And, yeah, I'm curious around decision making, right? Because you, you obviously have been right 80, 70, 80% of the time to get to, to, to the outcome that you got to. What is your, how do you, how do you, how do you make decisions and and key ones at that? What, what does that process look like for you?
1: I'd say it's no magic formula, but it's a mix of my intuition. And on that real quick, I want to say, you know, people, some people might scoff at that or think it's kind of silly, but really your intuition is the culmination of like every experience that, you know, that's gotten you to this point. And so don't be afraid to trust it. Um, That plus, you know, research, right. And learning what I can and maybe trusting in some other people's opinions and then ultimately just having confidence and taking the risk.
0: Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, look, we will work towards wrapping up. Um, A couple of last questions. Uh, Is there anything that you wanted me to ask you that I haven't yet or anything that you wanted to share Um, with our audience of early stage startup founders?
1: I mean, this is my favorite audience. I just, um, you know, if I had to leave you with a piece of advice, I'd probably say, you know, block out the noise as you're building. I think especially now, I mean, everyone's trying to create something, right? And, you know, whether it's a business or just a name for themselves and um, it's intimidating and overwhelming and we find ourselves trying to compare ourselves to each other or competition. Um, I think you just have to go inwards and just you know, focus on the vision that you have for what you're building and stay focused there. But also don't be afraid to shift. I think that becomes hard for some people because they think they have it figured out, but then things start to look a little different or they might need to change something, but they're, you know, so stubborn about it. And so try to keep an open mind there and think, you know what, I'm shifting this because it makes sense for my business. And so always being flexible and willing to to take your time with things
0: yeah no that's great advice thank you and uh last question is where can people find out more about yourself your work supermaker Mm -hmm. your new book um and also your fund
1: yeah probably the best place would be through my social media so twitter or instagram it's just jamie schmidt um jamie spelled j-a-i-m-e um and then i have a website jamieschmidt.info, and my fund again is called color so, pretty easy to get a hold of me too. I love DMs and I try to help you know, as many people as I can if I hear from you.
0: Amazing. Well, look, thank you so much for your time. This was an incredible interview. Really, really appreciate how open and honest you are and how giving you are with your experiences. And congratulations on all of your success thus far.
1: Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it.
0: Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview.